Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Trump is meeting with Republican senators at the White House, trying to talk them into giving him his wall, which will be the largest project ever done by the United States, if it's accomplished. Anyhow, on the line with us right now is Dr. Richard Wolf, our old friend. He's the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, most recently the author of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, the website democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you. A couple of quick questions here, and I'll just toss out all three of them to you. It looks like this is the worst December since December of 1929 with regard to the stock market. And we just got a report that wages for this year are down three-tenths of a percent for the entire year. The giant tax cut was supposed to boost wages, number one. Number two, what is the plunge protection team? And could they have something to do with preventing you know, a, a total meltdown on Wall Street? And number three, what will happen if Trump actually shuts down the country, particularly if he goes to Mar-a-Lago this afternoon and for the next 16 days nothing happens? Well, you know, let's take them... Uh take them one at a time, or maybe to jump around a little bit. The plunge protection team is something that's happening around the world. The volatility of the stock markets, the sudden collapse of the last few weeks, but even the gyrations before, are so disruptive to popular opinion, to investment plans, to what corporations are doing, that the governments have basically made two decisions. One, to set up these specialized teams, and two, to have those teams either plan or carry out. And the reason I put it that way is sometimes they carry these things out in secret. We won't find out about it perhaps for weeks or months or even years. And what they're doing is using government money to intervene in the stock markets to prevent collapses from going too far too fast uh, to make it less volatile 
Uh, it's been going on in other countries. Uh, we don't know for sure if it hasn't already been done in this country. If it has, it's been kept secret. Um, it's very distressing to the dominant ideology uh, to have the public directly subsidizing the private stock markets and so forth, but it may well have gone on. <laughs> All of that speaks to the fact that we are in a lot of trouble. I like to tell the story that even though I come at these things from the left end of the spectrum, I have friends who are on the right end and friends in the middle. And when we get together these last couple of years, we don't agree on how the United States got into its current situation, and we don't agree on how to get out of it. But we have been surprising one another by agreeing to the following sentence. This is the worst condition of the American economy in our lifetimes. And on that, we actually agree, and we're kind of amazed about it. So very quickly, we are in a very dangerous tit-for-tat war with the second most important economy in the world, namely the People's Republic of China. The Chinese, politically and economically, are an ascending global power, and the United States is a descending global power. That's a recipe for all kinds of grief, such as you're seeing. Through, number through clarities, two, right? Yeah, I mean, number two, we are seeing a president in the United States who is extremely isolated now, is in a corner, is grasping for ways to survive the next presidential election and seems to have decided that the kind of grandstanding around the wall, coupled with the departure of General Mattis and the withdrawal of troops from Syria and Afghanistan, that in the old struggle between guns and butter, he is so desperate, he's going to reduce the outlay of the military on guns to free up the money without raising taxes to provide social programs of one kind or another to shore up his popular support. It does presage a shift in American politics to a kind of right-wing populism, which in the end shouldn't surprise people since that's what's being done in desperation in quite a few other uh, countries. And finally, we have perhaps the most important thing, which is that the capitalist system is an unstable system. It has economic downturns every four to seven years. It's been more than seven years since the last one in 2009. So we are due for a downturn. And if you put all those things together, plus others I don't have time to go into, then you're going to see not only a stock market tumbling the way it has, frighteningly, um, but also the potential for that downturn in the market to become a more generalized economic downturn, and then all bets are off political as well as economic. So politically and also, you know, just in terms of, of home economics, what should Americans be doing? How, how do we respond to this? Well, I mean, if ever the phrase hunker down was applicable, now it is. If you're a business, do not make big investments now. If you're potentially a borrower, don't do it. This, is, this is not the time to buy a house. No, no, no. 
uh, you know, the housing market is in a kind of free fall of its own. We don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do. Uh, it was going to raise interest rates. It is now terrified. I know that firsthand about which way the economy looks to be going. They may not be able to do that. They'll have to lower the rates again. That's what got them into this pickle in the first place, so that's not an attractive option. You're seeing an awful lot of key institutions coming to a kind of a dead end, and that usually is a very negative sign about where we're headed. So, yes, don't take any risks, don't take any actions. Be very, very careful. I wrote this book, The Crash of 2016, the publisher's idea for a title. I just thought it should be Crash, but, you know, we wrote it back in 2013. The main premises of the book was that in 2008-2009, instead of bailing out people at the bottom like FDR did, where he bought right. millions of or hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many, lots and lots of mortgages from people, these five-year exploding mortgages, converted them to 30-year notes and allowed people to keep their homes and, and thus you know, bailed out the banks that way by keeping the, the homeowners intact. Instead of that, Bush, and then Obama continued the policy, decided to bail out the banks at the top. And millions of people literally got thrown out of their homes because the banks don't care. You know, you got Steve Mnuchin out there, the foreclosure king. And that basically, instead of solving the structural problems or even addressing the structural problems, all he did was just pour trillions, I think it was $23 trillion, some mind-boggling amount of money, in at the top. So basically, it was like papering over the cracks and holes in the dam with paper mache and bailing wire and bubble gum, and that uh, it was going to come unraveled. Is that a reasonable kind of back-of-the-envelope analysis? Yep, it's very good. And just to add the mechanics, if you pump money in and if you drop interest rates to, to zero or even negative for a while, you make it very tempting for everybody who's got an economic difficulty to solve it by borrowing money at ridiculous historically unprecedented low rates, including companies. Why the indebtedness of governments, of business, and of individuals has gone crazy. It's a way of not learning the lesson of what led you to the crash in 2008, and thereby guaranteeing that you're going to rebuild, as we now seem to have done, to another one now. And all that borrowed money, of course, went into the stock market, built up the prices there as People with money uh, bought shares from one another to the glee of the rising price for everybody. But this is a story whose ending we always know because we've been there and done that in the past. And now we're living literally as we speak through a horrendous Christmas end-of-year season when the chickens of this out-of-control capitalism are coming home to roost. It is very scary, and if you're not scared, it means you're not paying attention. Yeah. Back in 2008, as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the market hit a peak of around 14 16,000, something like that. It dropped down to around 6,500. Right. It's now tw a little below 24,000. That kind of an explosion just in a 10-year period, eight, eight or 10-year period from 6,000 up to 24,000, that's the kind of thing that we saw in the 1920s before the great crash of 1929. Have there been other periods of literally 100% growth in the stock market that have not resulted in a crash? Not that I'm aware of. That's, uh, in other words, these kinds of uh, spiraling up. So this is a problem. Crash ending. That's why they have these colorful names, you know, Greenspan's irrational exuberance, 
remembrances of the tulip mania back in the 17th century in, in Holland. It's easy to go back in the history of capitalism and see this kind of instability, irrationality, producing then the suffering. The, the problem is that the folks at the top, who are the main drivers of the speculation that, that takes us over the edge, are the ones best positioned not only to get the bailouts from the government, as we saw in 2008 and nine, but to kick the burden and the suffering down the hierarchy. In other words, they escape the worst of it and put that out more on the people who are losing their jobs or losing their benefits or in risk of not getting government supports. So it's a kind of a sad reality that those who cause it don't suffer from it and those who suffer from it are not the causes of it. Yeah. The injustice of it all is mind-boggling. It truly is. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom, and have a good holiday season. Thank you. You too, sir. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And Dr. Wolf's website, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. Kathy in Mount Prospect, Illinois. Hey, Kathy, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I have a follow-up question that I was hoping that uh, Professor Walsh had addressed. I'm a single woman moving into my retirement years. I'm close to 70. I've worked my whole life, put as much as I could into my 401k to try to make sure I could take care of myself in my retirement. And unfortunately, you can't just bail on money that's in the stock market without taking a bigger loss. And so I was wondering if you had any suggestions for people like me. I don't. I can't give investment advice, Kathy. A, I'm not a you know, an investment advisor, and B, my own investments have uh, been pretty unspectacular over the years. I did, you know, about a year ago, start warning people that, well, actually several years ago, but I, in, in particular in this last year, warning people that this market is, an, is a bubble market and it's going to blow up in our face. I fully expect it to drop another five or 10,000 points. But again, yeah. don't take advice from me because I've been wrong so many times. And in fact, my own personal portfolio is down about, I don't know, five or 6% for the year. So I'm, I'm no investment guru. The one thing I've learned from trying to invest my own money over the years is that if you're not a billionaire or a multimillionaire or even a millionaire, if you don't have professional investment advisors, uh, odds are you're gonna end up on the short end of the stick. It's it's just, it's a casino. Kathy, thank you for the call. I'm sorry I don't have an easy answer for you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I can say, Kathy, that I have subscribed for years to the Aiden forecast, A-D-E-N forecast. It's a pretty good investment newsletter. I don't always follow their advice, unfortunately. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Turkey's President uh, Erdogan, by the way, says that he is going to postpone his slaughter of the Kurds by three months. This from the Washington Post. Turkey will delay a planned offensive against Kurds in Syria's northeast, Erdogan said today, Friday. Still, he said, Turkey's military is planning to launch the offensive in several months with the aim of, quote, eliminating, end quote, the Kurds. Or at least the Kurdish YPG, which is basically, you know, code for the Kurds. Anyhow, Ron, okay, Barry in Springs, Michigan. Ron, what's on your mind? Self. I think she takes the picture. Ron? No. Hello, Tom? Yeah, you're on the air. Oh, thank you. Uh, Tom, this 
Syria and Afghanistan, we should have been out of there long. We never should have went into Syria I agree. in the first place. In my I opinion. agree. I absolutely agree. But that said, if we're going to pull out just so Erdogan can go in and, as, as he said, uh, what's his phrase, quote, eliminate the Kurdish YPG in, in Syria, he says now Turkey's military is planning to launch the offensive in several months. Turkey will delay the planned offensive against Kurdish forces in Syria's northeast, Erdogan said today. Uh, saying he welcomes Trump's decision. So he's going to postpone his slaughter of the Kurds for a few months. I would have said, okay, we're going to pull out. The Kurds can take care of themselves, but you're not going to go in and take them out. Erdogan is playing with slaughter here. He's playing with genocide, which is exactly what he wants. And there's lots of ways we can stop this without necessarily keeping a fighting force or a military force in there. I I would would totally agree with you, Tom. But if, if it's going to come to deploying our troops to go against the Turks, I cannot agree. No, like I said, I don't think that we need it. We can get our troops out of there and we can stop Turkey from going in. And frankly, I think that we need to get out of Iraq and we need to get out of Afghanistan, too. And we need to do it as quickly as possible. And I realize there are consequences to that. We saw that in Vietnam at the end of that war. And it was a disaster. Short term. Long term, it led to stability. So, yeah. Ron, thank you for the call. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that will really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady has been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping and time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Tom Hartman here with you. And it's looking increasingly like Trump is not going to sign the continuing resolution that will keep the government open. This isn't the entire government that will shut down this time. That's what Ted Cruz did in 2013 and what Newt Gingrich did back in the 90s, because they've already passed several pieces of spending legislation in the previous weeks. But it is somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of the government that is not yet funded. If this doesn't happen, you're going to see the shutdown. I, my personal opinion is what's going on is that Trump wants this to happen because it'll distract us from the fact that his Syria policy is being driven by his desire to extract money out of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for his family and his son-in-law. And the price of that, the, the Saudis and, and their buddies, the Emiratis, are saying, quit talking about Khashoggi enough already. And you, you got to shut up Erdogan in Turkey. You got to just shut that guy up because he's the one who's, you know, telling the world constantly that, that we murdered this guy in our embassy. Shut him up and, uh, you know, we'll give you what you want. The Saudis are saying to the Trump crime family, shut up Erdogan and, you know, we'll consider funding your son-in-law's billion dollar debt on Fifth Avenue or something like that. Or Erdogan is saying, hey, you know, if I'll you know, do what I want. I'll let you build a Trump Tower in Ankara. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I guarantee you there's something in it for the Trump crime family. 
And, you know, he doesn't want us talking about that anymore because that blew up in his face. He doesn't want us talking about Bob Mueller and the, well, frankly, some of these prosecutions have nothing to do with Mueller. They're coming out of the Southern District of New York. They're coming out of the D.C. District, uh, the federal prosecutors in these two areas. And, you know, going after Flynn and going after Manafort and Cohen and all this stuff. And Trump doesn't want us talking about that. So, hey, let's talk about whether to shut down the government, right? It worked for Newt. It worked for Ted. Maybe it'll work for me, says Donald. So we'll see. He is getting pushback from his own people, though. Will Hurd is a Republican congressman from Texas, and he was on Ali Velshi's show on MSNBC this morning, and he said that people sent us to Washington, D.C. to get something done, not to burn the place down. That's the phrase he used. So we should be able, he said, to at least fund the government. And then uh, Ali Velshi asked him about border security. He said, this fallacy that the wall equals border security. I spent a decade as an undercover officer in the CIA chasing bad guys. We're monitoring or keeping track of the wrong metric. It's not how many miles of wall you have that's going to keep us safe. It's are we keeping bad people and keeping drugs out of our country? Building a wall from sea to shining sea is the most expensive and least effective way to do border security. The thing that everybody misses, and you know, I'm surprised, frankly, that the media doesn't repeat more often, and probably I should too, is that Trump wasn't originally in favor of building a wall. He thought it was a dumb idea. He thought it would be expensive. It would be a waste of time and money. He was not in favor of building a wall. Similarly, he was not in favor of the lock them up chant about Hillary Clinton. He thought that there were other things that would motivate the American people, like bringing jobs back, getting out of trade deals, things like that. By the way, that instinct was correct. The American people want us to get out of these terrible trade deals. But when Cambridge Analytica, early on in Trump's campaign, when Cambridge Analytica tested various campaign memes, they found that the two highest rating ones among potential Trump base, the two memes that rated the highest, that got the strongest response from the potential Trump base were build a wall and have Mexico pay for it, and lock up Hillary Clinton for, for, for crimes. And so Trump tried those out just for the hell of it. He was very skeptical. Tried those out in one of his campaign stops, in one of his rallies, and the crowd went nuts. And of course, you know, when the crowd goes nuts, Donald is like, hey, this is my thing, right? So we forget that, frankly, at our own peril. Matt in Napa, California. Hey, Matt, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, just about the pullout in Syria. Mm-hmm. For one, it seems like the Democrats in general are becoming more the war party, and liberals are becoming more and more comfortable with confronting Russia. I find that a, a worrisome trend. And, and when now when we can't even support Trump when he does pull out of what basically, in my mind, is an imperial project. To begin with, that's even more disappointing. I mean, I'm not quite sure whether once we get there, that you broke it, you own it. Well, let me lay it out for you, Matt. And thank you for calling and giving me the opportunity. And once I've laid it out, we can discuss it if you'd like. First of all, just broadly speaking, we never should have invaded Afghanistan in response to 9-11. We should have taken Mullah Omar's offer to arrest bin Laden and his 5,000 merry men and send them off to a third country for prosecution. We should have engaged Interpol and the EU and NATO and everybody else in a worldwide manhunt and dealt with it as a crime, which is what it was. It was not an act of a state. Afghanistan had nothing to do with attacking the United States. It was crazy for us to attack that country. And then it was even crazier for us to attack Iraq. And 
taking out Gaddafi in Libya has led to, you know, Libya was the sort of cork in the bottle of northern Africa. It's right across the straits there from Italy and Greece. And so suddenly, you know, once Gaddafi was gone, you had all these refugees flowing into Europe, which triggered the right-wing extremism in Europe now, which led to the election of Orban in Hungary and the election of a right-wing government in Poland and on and on and on. I mean, all these are the consequences of George W. Bush's misadventures that we now know were done just to gain and keep political power to get himself reelected in 2004. So broadly speaking, I'm opposed to all of that. And I was also opposed to our involving ourselves in Syria. I get it that Russia has actually a legitimate security interest in Syria. They have a deep water port there. It's their only Mediterranean port. And if Russia was to start invading Qatar, where we have a deep water port, and which is no democratic government, by the way, you know, we would be flipped out about it. So, you know, understanding the broad, broadly speaking, the geopolitics of that region, that's where I'm at. That said, the Kurds have for millennia, I mean, literally for hundreds to thousands of years, been a separate, they would call themselves a separate racial group. You know, I don't think that I would use that phrase, but separate tribe, shall we say. They have their own language. They have their own version of Islam. And they had their own country before the Ottoman Empire and then, you know, largely their own country before World War I. After World War I, we carved up Kurdistan into three parts. We put part of it in northern Syria. We put part of it in northwestern Iraq. And we put part of it in southern Turkey. So that's the old Kurdistan. So we have reached out to the Kurds on a couple occasions since Bush's first invasion of Afghanistan, and it seems every time we ultimately betray them. But the Peshmerga, the Kurdish fighting force that's, you know, hundreds of years old, they're some of the best fighters in the world. So we reached out to the Kurds in northern Syria and said, A, we'll protect you from Assad, B, we'll protect you from Turkey. Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has, you know, the Kurds in the south of Turkey, and he has been trying to slaughter them. He wants to commit genocide for years. He hates these people. And the only thing that's preventing him is that he wants to stay in the European Union and he wants to stay part of NATO, so he can't do that. So now Erdogan has come out and said that he wants to invade northern Syria and commit genocide there. He hasn't said he wants to commit genocide, but obviously he wants to invade northern Syria to take out the Kurds. He wants to slaughter the Kurds in northern Syria. And so we went into northern Syria and we said to the Kurds, okay, you know, ISIS has seized some land in this area. You fight ISIS. We'll provide you with air support. We only have 2,000 troops there. We'll provide you with air support and tactical support and intelligence and technology, and you do the fighting. And they did. And they lost thousands of soldiers. But they effectively cleared the area of ISIS. And now Erdogan wants to take them out. Donald Trump, meanwhile, is desperate to get Erdogan to shut up about Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia's complicity in the torture, murder, and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. So Erdogan says, okay, you know, I'll shut up about this and let you continue doing business and let Kushner's continue getting money from the Saudis and their buddies, the Emiratis. I'll only do that if you'll deport that mullah who is in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, who he thinks was responsible for the coup against him. Trump tried to do that. We know now Trump tried to do that. And that was Michael Flynn's whole thing, his first week as a national security advisor. And it blew up because it got publicity. So Erdogan comes back and has a conversation with Trump literally last week. And, you know, we don't know exactly what he said, but this is my conclusion. Says, okay, I can't get my mullah, but uh, I'll tell you what, let me kill the Kurds in northern Syria. So then Trump goes and says, okay, Kurds, you're going to die. See you later. I'm all in favor of our pulling out of northern Syria, but you've got French troops there, you've got British troops there, you've got other NATO coalition troops who are in that region. We are abandoning them. We're abandoning the Kurds. We should at the very least have said to Turkey, 
if you try to invade Syria, we will be back. But we didn't say that. Essentially, what Trump said was, okay, fine, Erdogan, have your slaughter. I think that's wrong. What do you think, Matt? Well, certainly I'm not going to disagree about the Kurdish situation in particular and, and the way you describe it. But, you know, I think the, for world the safety of the world, it's a better move overall because, and I'm not even sure Trump is in control of all that, that goes on there. No, his military is opposed to this. His national security apparatus is opposed to this. The State Department's opposed to it. Everybody's in favor of pulling us out of everywhere we possibly can, me included. And I realize that this is the exact same excuse that's used to perpetuate and lengthen and extend and has been for 16, 17 years, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, we should have gotten out of hell of a long time before that. And yeah, there's going to be a mess there. But at the very least, we should have threatened Turkey. I mean, this is this to me is a transparent transaction. Donald Trump wants to build hotels in Turkey, and he and Jared Kushner desperately need a billion dollars for Kushner's building, and they've been trying to get it from the Emiratis and the Saudis. And it looks to me like this is a simple payoff to Erdogan and to Saudi Arabia to shut up Erdogan in order to keep the money flowing to the Kushner family. And that's what offends me so much. Matt, thanks a lot for the call. It's good talking to you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Bob in Newark, yeah. Ohio. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind? Happy New Year's. Thank you. Back at you, Bob. Okay, well, if you was drinking alcohol and you put a baby in a car... right. And a police officer pulls you over, he charges you with endangerment of a child. Right, I get that. Okay. And I agree. Why with can't that. the people come across the border be charged with the same crime? Well, for example, you had this one kid, uh, Pramila Jayapal, was talking about earlier today, where she said that this kid had had both his knees shot through by the gangs in Honduras. And he made his way to the southern border of the United States to seek refuge. These are not people who are just coming here to go to Disneyland. These are people who are fleeing horrors. I'm going to play a clip here. This is uh, Ronald Reagan back in uh, 1996. Just FYI, for those of you who uh, are not Reagan fans, (laughs) this is incredible. We're talking about putting up a fence. Why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. And when they want to go back, they can go back, and they can cross and open the border both ways by understanding their problems. Ronald Reagan talking about he wants open borders, right? I mean, you know, this wall is crazy. We didn't have a wall. You know, it wasn't until the 90s, actually, that most of the wall was built. You know, people came here, they went back home. It's, it, it, this, this, this whole argument is nuts. Jay in Bakersfield, California. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind? Yeah, I want to just talk about, you know, Trump's pull out of Syria might be tied to the fact that oil is 46.50 or 48.50 a barrel, and producers in America stopped producing around 50, I think. Right. And fracking I think is, fracking is not viable under, under $50 a barrel, basically, or at least new fracking. Yeah, so I think he wants to create instability in the Middle East to do a couple of things. One, to raise oil prices, and two, to make a deal with Russia and and Turkey. Yeah. That's just my opinion. And if you look at where I'm from in Kern County, the oil producers here back in the 80s, early 70s, late 70s and early 80s used to be all union. 
and <laughs> Texaco, Shell, Pennzoil, all of them, Occidental, they were all union that had union labor. And when Reagan came in, Reagan disbanded the union labor, and uh, roustabout wages went from $18 an hour to $9 an hour overnight. Wow. And wow. it really destroyed the economy in this town That's interesting. and the growth. Well, to speak to your point that you think that Trump might be doing this to try to raise the price of oil to help out his buddies, of course, Russia wants the price of oil to go up. And the oil guys, you know, the Koch brothers and all these other guys, I, you know, some of them are refiners. They probably don't want the price of oil to go up. The ones who are the producers definitely want the price of oil to go up. There's a very, very delicate balance here, a very narrow window in which they want to operate. If oil is more than $50 a barrel, then it's economical, it's profitable to produce it in the United States. If it's over $80 a barrel, then every form of alternative energy, basically wind and solar, become massively more economical than fossil fuels. And so when the price of oil goes above $80 a barrel, that starts to aggressively depress demand for oil. And they don't want that to happen either. So they try to keep it in this window of roughly $55 or $60 to $80. That's their sweet spot. If they go above $80, they're politically at risk. If they go below $60 or below, certainly below $50, then you know, it's not profitable. And I think that massive instability in the Middle East could pop the price of oil above $100 a barrel. So I don't think that that's the main reason he's doing it. I think this has to do with his hotel business and his son-in-law. But, you know, who knows? What do you think, Jay? He's a crook, and he's out for his own greed and his own self. Yeah. And uh, he'll do anything to keep himself afloat. Yeah, it's all so about the I Trump crime family. I agree more than my point. There you go. Jay, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month. But odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT, and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now, and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com Enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Stephen in Rochester, New York. Stephen, it says here you want to disagree with me. Why do you think that we should immediately pull out and just abandon the Kurds? Well, first of all, I think that he knows a hell of a lot more. By he, you oh, mean Donald okay. Trump? Yeah. He you think Trump is smarter than General what's Mattis? What's going on there than anybody else? You think that Donald Trump he, knows more about what's going on in more. Syria than his cabinet-level Secretary of Defense or the Joint Chiefs, who are both opposed to this move? They have got some information that you don't have. Which might be why they're opposed to pulling out. Which might not be what you're saying. They feel that they ought to pull.
pull out. No, no, they don't. Now, 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 Mattis, no, is, wait, Mattis wait, is opposed wait. to pulling out. The State Department is opposed to pulling out. The Joint Chiefs are opposed to pulling out. Congress is opposed to pulling out. All these people who are getting all these security briefings, they're all opposed to pulling out. Marco Rubio, Bob Corker, you know, Marco Rubio, reliable, you know, Coke hey, ally. No, no, I think. So Donald Trump is the only guy who knows what's really going on in Syria, in your opinion, Stephen? He is the only one. Because he's such a, a stable genius. He's the one that has got the information from Joint Chief of Staff. Well, then now, why are the Joint Chiefs saying don't pull out? There's something going on there that you don't know. Stephen, and, Stephen you know, hang on just a second. Do you understand, do you realize that the Joint Chiefs, that the Secretary of Defense that the National Security Advisor are all in favor of our staying there. The only yes. person in the National Security Apparatus who says we should pull out is Trump. So you're saying that he's the only one who knows something, that all these guys who are actually in contact with the troops on the ground, who are actually monitoring the situation, this is what they do 24-7, they do it for a living, that they're all wrong and Trump is right? What does Trump know that Mattis doesn't know? Okay. His Secretary of Defense. He knows much more than any of them. Now, oh, he, he knows he, that Erdogan will let him build a hotel in Ankara. Understand how it works in Washington. He gets information from people around him. And you mean like Sean Hannity? He calls every night. He doesn't take security briefings anymore, Stephen. He has stopped. He doesn't read the national security you briefings. You are full of baloney on that. <laughs> Donald Trump himself has said he doesn't need to read the security briefings. He knows this stuff than his intelligence agencies. Oh, that's that's not true at all. Trump did say that, Stephen. That's that's. You see. Look it up. You you just refuse to allow him. No, I have to laugh. Okay. Well, good luck. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay. Stephen, thank you. I guess we disagree. Great tweet from Hillary Clinton today. Actions have consequences, and whether we're in Syria or not, the people who want to harm us are there and at war. Isolationism is weakness. Empowering ISIS is dangerous. Playing into Russian and Iran's hands is foolish. This president is putting our national security at grave risk. Yeah. Some of the reports are that uh, from from apparently from some of the people who were in the room with him this morning with these Republican senators is that he was acting essentially irrational. Um, I don't know if that means like they don't think he's genuinely not rational or they just thought he was saying stupid things. But flushing the adults in the room out of his cabinet, he's diminishing the probability that the vice president and the cabinet will invoke the 25th Amendment which may well be exactly what he's up to. Norma in uh, Inverness, Florida. Hey, Norma, what's up? Hi, I just had two thoughts on Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. He watches Fox News because he has no political views, so they're feeding him what he's espousing to the rest of the world. Yeah, this and is... By, go ahead. And by that token... He's unifying us. Everybody says he's tearing us apart, but he's unifying the everybody that the more he does, the less 
they like him. I think it's moving in that direction, Norman. I think you've absolutely nailed it. And, and I've been saying for some time, the problem with Donald Trump as a politician is that he has no core. He has no core beliefs. His, his only belief is me, me, me. He's a malignant narcissist. Everything in the world is about him. He's the star of his own movie. And he has to have, and, and one of the things about genuine malignant narcissists is not only that they think that they're the only person in the world, but they have to, they have to have in their mind an enemy to oppose. And he has created numerous enemies throughout his life. But basically what he does is he turns everybody into either friend or foe, and he loves having foes. And it's tearing our country apart. And the fact that he has no core convictions, he has no understanding of basis of politics, he has no understanding of the basis of democracy, he doesn't, I don't think, even understand what the word means. The founders would be just absolutely horrified by this. I agree. Yeah. Whew. Amazing. Sunday in Newcastle, Wyoming. Hey, Sunday, what's on your mind? Well, what you just said about Turkey wanting to attack the Kurds, I totally agree with that. But on the Another side of the issue, Israel has made a statement that they intend to attack Lebanon over the Hezbollah tunnel situation. Mm -hmm. If they coincide an attack with Turkey and with Israel at the same time, that would put our people in the line of fire, so that's why they're being pulled out. And this would also allow the Hezbollah and the Kurds from working together because the whole Middle East would come to defend Lebanon. Now, let me, just, let me just clarify something, Sunday. I'm sorry, I don't have a map of the Middle East in front of me. My recollection is that Syria and Lebanon share a border and that Syria and Israel and Lebanon share a border. Am I, am I remembering right. that right? Right. Okay. But, but all the fighters in the Middle East that are attached with Hezbollah, Syria, and Iran would come to defend an attack on Lebanon. Right, I get and that. that. Was, and and that I think that that could, be the, that could be the spark that lights the fuse for World War III. I don't disagree yeah. with that at all. But again, my geographic recollection is that the Lebanese and Israeli borders, the Golan Heights, the very southern tip of Syria, that's all happening in the south of Syria. Right. The Kurds are in the extreme north of right. Syria, up near the but Turkish border. But attacking from both sides in conjunction, it would split the forces. Do they fight Israel or do they fight Turkey? And so Hezbollah... They being Syria? No, Hezbollah. Okay. And, well, yes, and Syria. Right. And then that would involve, you know, the whole Middle East, because there are Shias in every country of sure. the Middle East. Sure. And so they are all going to come to defend against an Israeli attack on Lebanon, and that would leave the Kurds open for Turkey to attack. Right. And so... And Iraq is a majority Shia and now has a Shia right. government, so Iraq has essentially aligned itself with Iran, something that, uh, you know, Trump and the Bushies don't want you to know. Right. So basically, we have set up a war between the Shia and the Sunni. And if the right. Sunni win, then ISIS is ultimately going to win. ISIS and Saudi Arabia, I mean, ISIS grew out of Saudi Arabia's Wahhabist movement. So, wow, that's an interesting analysis. And I don't think that you're wrong. I think that. On the 13th, uh, Michael yeah. Malouf reported that Israel made the statement that they are going to attack Lebanon. Turkey has made the statement they are going to attack the Kurds. Right. So if they coordinate those attacks, look out. Wow. 
stockpile. And they're both relatively right-wing governments. Uh, yes, and, and I think that's why Trump is pulling the people out of there So right he's now pulling out just to get out of the way. In the middle. Because yeah, he knows be that a war is coming? Yeah, I think so. You know, that makes a certain amount of sense. So uh, understanding that, the geostrategic perspective here that you're bringing Sunday to this, which is fascinating, and thank you for it, uh, what would you suggest that we should be doing? Uh, I would suggest that we just pull our people out of all of those countries and let them tend to their own business. Yeah, there is an impulse to do that. (sighs) I don't think it'll ever happen, though. You don't think that our troops in northern Syria might be the one thing that's preventing Turkey from triggering this war? No, I do not. So Turkey would invade northern Syria even if American forces were in the the middle, in the way? Yep, I think so. Wow. Because if you look at what's happening with Israel, Netanyahu has some legal issues, and so he has to create a war to boost his popularity, and it echoes the same thing that is happening with Ukraine provoking Russia to keep Poroshenko in power. Right. And Trump now looking at the end of his own presidency. That's right. And so with all these people playing their little ego games, they're going to sacrifice everything to have their power maintained. And this could be a World War I scenario where all these interlocking treaties bring everybody into the fight. Sunday, thank you. You're, you're one of the most insightful foreign policy analysts who has called in a long time. I appreciate it. Uh, do you have a background in this, Sunday? Or are you no, just a- I'm, just a, I'm just an information junkie, and I'm watching a lot of news from a lot of sources. I guess so. Sunday, thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you, and thanks for watching Free Speech TV. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com now to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is Daryl Johnson. He's the owner of DT Analytics, a former Department of Homeland Security analyst. He wrote the controversial or participated in writing the controversial 2009 report, Right Wing Extremism, Current Economic and Political Climate, Fueling Resurgence and Radicalization Recruitment. He's the author of Right Wing Resurgence, How a Domestic Terrorist Threat is Being Ignored. His website, dtanalytics.org. You can tweet him at dtanalytics.org. Witter, W-I-T-T-E-R. Daryl, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for joining us. First of all, is it true that Donald Trump's Homeland Security Department is not monitoring right-wing terrorists? That is true. When I left back in 2010, they had one lone analyst looking at domestic right-wing extremism, Mm -hmm. and now they have none. Why would that be? Well, as you saw in the controversial report I wrote back in 2009, 
this is a political minefield, this topic. Mm. There's a lot of people that align themselves that are sympathetic to some of the white nationalist, uh, anti-government groups. And so I just think Homeland Security takes a risk-averse approach. They don't want any more political firestorm directed their way. So your uh, report back in 2009, am I misremembering? I thought the FBI had issued a report on right-wing extremism that the Obama administration that followed by almost a year a report on uh, radicalized Muslim terrorism. And that report, when it came out in the early months of the Obama presidency, he basically had to walk it back and stuff it because of the explosion on Fox so-called news and right-wing hate radio. Are those the same reports or are these separate reports or what am I enlightening, yeah, please? Yeah, my report. It was produced under Homeland Security. Janet Napolitano was the secretary at the time. So the FBI didn't have any role in that before. It's just purely a Homeland Security report. I see. Okay. I was conflating Homeland Security and FBI in my head. So essentially, what is the situation right now, Daryl, with regard to right-wing extremism in the United States? How dangerous is this? Or are we you know, overly concerned about just a small group of fundamentalists who have largely always been with us, like the old John Birch Society back in the 50s? Yeah, so what we're talking about is from 2008 until 2016, we had a steady increase in these groups and their activities and even the violent attacks. And so typically during Republican administrations, we see the far right dial back on its activities and the membership goes down because they don't have these fears of you know, gun confiscations or gun laws being passed or, you know, rights being extended to minority groups like you may have under Democratic administration. So typically we see a dial back, but under the Trump administration, we've actually seen these groups continue to operate at a heightened level and continue to conduct violent attacks. And so it kind of goes against the trends that we've seen over the past five decades. I read a report or an article a couple of days ago that said that since 2008, the majority of terrorist attacks inside the United States, the absolute majority every year since 2008, the absolute majority of terrorist attacks inside the United States have been conducted by white nationalists, white right wing extremists. Is that is that accurate? That is accurate. And America's, I guess, image when they talk terrorism, they always think it's someone with dark skin that has a Arab sounding name that to radical interpretations of Islam, they don't realize we've got white terrorists here in America that are born and bred within. Wow. So what do we do, Daryl? We're talking with Daryl Johnson, the uh, owner of DT Analytics, former uh, Department of Homeland Security analyst, the guy who wrote that 2009 report on right-wing extremism. What do we do? So at a federal level, there needs to be more resources devoted to analyzing and combating the threat uh, they also need to conduct more training of state and local law enforcement so they can become more aware of these groups and their violent beliefs. On a local level or at, a, I guess, a community or individual level, we need to combat this hatred with love. We need to care for our fellow man. If we have a family member that's subscribing to these extremist beliefs, we need to challenge it in a loving way or dismiss it in a kind of a humorous way. Mm. So rather than letting this hatred fester to the point where someone gets frustrated enough that they go out and hurt somebody, we need to embrace these people and talk them away from these extremist beliefs and try to include them in the mainstream society. That's a remarkable statement to hear from a former DHS, Department of Homeland Security analyst, that we need to respond to hate with love. It is so spot on. And, you know, rather than getting all jacked up and responding to hate with hate, Daryl Johnson, you're doing God's work, sir. Thank you so much for dropping by today and sharing your observations with us. 
I really appreciate it. And happy holidays and Merry Christmas to everybody. Thank you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you too, Daryl. Thanks so much for being with us. It's great talking with you. Today we're reading from Edward Nell's new book, Progress and Poverty in Economics. The subtitle, Henry George and How Growth in Real Estate Contributes to Inequality and Financial Instability. This is from the introduction, which is subheaded, Reviving the Work of America's Most Original Economist. Andrew Mazzone and I collaborated on a project to review the work of the 19th century American economist Henry George, especially his landmark book, Progress and Poverty, 1879, to see how George's work stood up in the light of modern economics and to determine what could be brought up to date and applied to the contemporary world. We wanted to establish that George's work was relevant and also to criticize American academic economists for having overlooked or rejected George both in his own time when his work was a worldwide sensation and afterward even today. Andrew died suddenly in the middle of the project. This book is a tribute to him and completes what we began. George began his career as an author and public personality with progress and poverty arguing that progress brought poverty in its wake and that poverty might even outpace progress, an important original point of view that has not lost any of its relevance since George's time. In fact, in our age of burgeoning inequality, it may be more relevant today than ever before. The grounds for this paradoxical interlinking of progress and poverty lay in the effect of rising rents. For George, rents were payment, not for the use of land in the usual sense, for pure access to specific places and locations. But why should some people have the right to limit others' access to the use of the earth? Surely it belongs to us all. Worse, the limiting of access by demanding payment would undermine the benefits of innovation and hard work. To prevent this linking of progress and poverty, George said a major policy shift in taxation was required. This is well known among economists as the Georgist single tax on rents, or the Henry George Theorem. Since George's time, there has been progress, both in the economy itself and in economic analysis. The economy has been growing, and growth models have become highly sophisticated, in many cases focusing on matters that were central to George a century earlier. But that progress has also led to poverty, obvious in the economy itself. Our mainstream economics is also poverty-ridden, stricken. Our analytical models do not explain the persistence of poverty very well, nor do they account for crises and crashes, let alone the recent stubborn growth of inequality. The mainstream theory of income distribution, marginal productivity, which assumes diminishing returns for all these factors of production and the markets will coordinate their adjustment. Distribution is hopelessly flawed. George rightly rejected an early version of it. And contemporary economic theory has almost completely lost sight of rents and real estate. Even though real estate was center stage in the global financial crisis of 2008, a crisis directly resulting from speculation in the housing market. And in 2016, Donald Trump, a real estate developer whose rise to power is intimately linked to rents and real estate speculation, was elected president. With a solid Republican majority in Congress, he began to implement a set of relentlessly regressive trickle-down economic policies that can be expected to lead to more poverty among vast segments of the population. Andrew and I wanted to find insights and tools in George's thought to counter this trend, to support progress and alleviate poverty. Before Andrew died, we had settled on five main points in George's writing that we wanted particularly to explore. One, 
George emphasized cooperation as well as competition in regard to increasing productivity. He saw that the division of labor and cooperation as settlements developed on new land created value in location and generated increases in output while bringing about innovation. This is what generated the differentials on which rent is based, as we will explain. Number two, George and his followers claimed that the total value of land in a region would tend to equal the value of the aggregate output of that region. Three, further, they claimed that total rents would tend to equal the costs of government, so that taxing rents would pay for government. Number four, they contended that, unless prevented by an activist government, inequality in wealth and income, roughly between the upper and lower classes, but also between other significant groups, would tend to rise inexorably. And number five, and finally, George repeatedly attacked land speculation and its tendency to withdraw land from productive use and to promote concentration, a point that seemed to both Andrew and myself to have a direct bearing on today's world. Only today is not land alone, but finance generally that is subject to speculative excesses. I wrote up notes on theory while Andrew worked on rents, cost of government, land values, and GNP. I eventually put our notes together into two more or less finished articles to present at the annual conference of the Eastern Economics Association in New York City. Economists have given George short shrift, which is a shameful oversight. He has much to teach us. He was uniquely American, perhaps our greatest economist, certainly our most original. He is justly famous and heralded in the 19th century, and his book Progress and Poverty, which is the source for much of our analysis on these pages, was the best-selling book on economics of that entire century. The book Progress and Poverty in Economics by Edward Bell. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch on, on uh, basically uh, non-public YouTube uh, links. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. It's based in part on my book, Unequal Protection, and based in part on a book I'm writing, I'm working on right now in the Supreme Court, and in part just, you know, what, what I know and you need to know about how the Supreme Court got as badly corrupted as it is. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with, with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Again with uh, Luke Vargas with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do. Alan Ratner's new book, Luke is the Chief Foreign Correspondent for Talk Media News. You can find his podcast on the web by Googling his name and you can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Luke, we're learning more about Trump and Syria. What's going on with this? Yeah, well, the AP has a great report out today, or great uh, being maybe not the best way to characterize it, pretty illuminating report, which uh, shows that on December 14th, the president had a phone call with Turkish President Recep Erdogan, and it set off, as the AP describes, a four-day scramble by the outgoing defense secretary, Mike Pompeo as well, and John Bolton, all to try to persuade Trump not to execute the serial pullout. What's amazing, according to this, is, is the circumstances surrounding this phone call. So it's set up by Mike Pompeo the the previous day, December 13th. That's the day that Turkey's foreign minister, Shavuz Solu, issues this threat saying that Turkey is going to attack these U.S.-aligned 
Syrian Kurdish fighters. And it's a very uh, heated comment. The foreign minister is saying, you know, we're going to bury them in ditches regardless of whether the U.S. is there to protect them. Right, it was going to be a genocide. Right. It's a pretty, you know, pretty brazen threat towards our ally. And so Pompeo lines up the call and Bolton and Pompeo and or actually Mattis and Pompeo and the National Security Council staff uh, spend the night before drafting up a, a list of talking points for President Trump to use to push back against Erdogan to say, hey, stop, stop that, basically. And um, and, and Trump in this all accounts of this phone call basically throws the script out the window. Erdogan begins the call and sort of interrupts Trump and says, according to the Associated Press, hey, you know, you remember your own words, your promise to your voters. You said you were going to only be in Syria until ISIS is defeated. And your own staff, your own generals, he starts naming them, say it's they're 99 percent defeated. So why are you still there? And Trump basically capitulates on the spot. And he does it so fast uh, that Erdogan begins to back down himself. According to the AP, the the Turkish president had no expectation Trump was going to change positions so fast and actually spends the rest of the call warning him against too hasty of a withdrawal, warning that it is going to create a security headache, you know, for Turkey as well. uh, In addition to, I guess, more, more importantly, helping Turkish interests down the line, but sort of remarkable. And it makes you wonder, you know, and I think the speculation begins to run rampant is sort of why, you know, Trump would be so amenable after so little persuasion by the Turkish president. Uh, I don't want to engage in too much speculation, but it's worth remembering. Turkey has been the country that has been basically generating this whole nasty global, you know, PR campaign against Saudi Arabia. And and bear in mind, you know, when the AP is reporting the list of American and white, you know, White House officials who are advising Trump to push back against the Turks, it's Pompeo, Manis, and and Bolton. No mention there of Jared Kushner, who's been right. really trying to sort of run interference on behalf of the Saudis. So, it, you know, it's unclear. This is know, this is the theory that I laid out, Luke, on this program hours after Trump yeah. tweeted that he was going to pull out of Syria. And, uh, you know, stop me if I've already told you. But I said Kushner needs his billion dollars for his five, 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 Sixth Avenue. And and Trump wants to build a, a Trump Tower in, in Ankara and all around the region in the world. And Trump probably needs money from the Saudis and the and the Emiratis also, who are like thick like thieves. And so he needs to shut Erdogan up about Khashoggi. And Erdogan first said, I'll shut up if you give me that cleric. Trump tried to do that. It got into the press. It got blown up. He couldn't do that. So then Erdogan says, OK, here's my price now. I want to kill the Kurds. And Trump says, OK, fine, have at it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, by by comparison to the the extradition of of Gulen, I mean, I think Trump probably say, okay, look, I mean, this is the pull the troop pullout is a little more convenient for me. It, it, it you know it maybe divides the left, right? It splits the sort of anti war right. crowd from Democrats who are sort of advocating more of the status quo in in Syria, and it sort of fits into my whole campaign narrative. So that's actually maybe better than than Gulen. And I'll just point out briefly, you know, Trump. Yes, there he he has. You know, there were plans to build more Trump towers. There is already, a, uh, I believe, a Trump uh, shopping plaza and tower in Istanbul that Erdogan there was for the he attended ah, the ribbon cutting back in 2012. That's right. And uh, scouring the Internet, I did find that there is apparently testimony that Don Jr. gave to congressional investigators last year, saying that shortly after the election, he flew out to Turkey, uh, had a big uh, hunting holiday with an unnamed redacted, uh, you know, multimillionaire business executive in Turkey. So there are business ties that, that proliferate. But again, the, the AP details about sort of the turnaround here are pretty shocking. It's all about what Trump and Kushner want. It's terrible. This is terrible. So how are the Kurdish leaders in Syria responding to this? 
Yeah, I know we're running out of time, so I'll keep it brief. Uh, basically, they have been now appealing for the, to the French for help, basically saying, look, you, you have some troops there in Syria. You've been close with, uh, with the, you know, cooperation with the U.S. military, and you're a fellow NATO member. You've got to. You have a duty to exert pressure on Turkey to constrain their behavior. And, and of course, the big piece of leverage that the Kurds think they still have are all these ISIS prisoners, by some accounts up to 3,200 of them, that really, were they to be released if the Kurds come under attack from the Turks, would basically in a day, double or maybe even triple the current amount of ISIS fighters that we have in the world. So we are a hair's, you know, razor's edge away from the ISIS threat. We're coming right back onto the scene because of the release of prisoners that the Kurds can't defend anymore. So the numbers as they exist now could change very quickly, depending on how the Kurds respond in the next few weeks. So so we're literally down to just two or three thousand ISIS fighters left in the world. And, That's a and, low estimate for Syria is 2,000. Oh, it's a low estimate, and it yeah. could be in the tens of thousands. But we believe it's actively engaged in combat, not just those right. you know, laying in wait. So Trump's behavior could double the size of ISIS in Syria. Even a little more than that. That's unbelievable. Luke Vargas. Thanks, Luke. Thank you, Tom. And, happy holidays. And, and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, whatever's appropriate for you. Thanks so much. Great, great talking with you. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. You can follow him at The Courier on Twitter. Thanks so much for being with us. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas holiday or whatever the holiday may be for you around this time. I hope it's a, a great and blessed and, and a, a, you know wonderful and family-filled time for you. And thanks so much for participating with us in this program. We'll see you on the other side of Christmas. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.